listening to the Bible 126 show. Hi, I'm Ron Matson, and welcome to Learn the Bible in 24 Hours with Dr. Chuck Missler. Chuck will be taking you through some interesting oversights of the Bible and showing you some amazing facts. For more information on how you can join this group, click here. Well, we are in Learn the Bible in 24 Hours as uh, our project, and we are in hour 11, where we're going to do a quick survey of the major prophets. And uh, Isaiah, of course, is uh, the first, the largest. When they say major prophets, by the way, I should point out to you, that's not because they're more important. It's a misleading label. It's a label of a librarian. It just means these books are the larger ones. The, there are uh, five major pro- uh, prophets, and uh, there are you know, 12 so-called minor prophets. This just means they're small books. Some of the most interesting prophecies, some of the most important ones, are in the minor prophets. So don't let that uh, labeling fool you. Isaiah is well known as the messianic prophet. There is more stuff in his book uh, that anticipates the Messiah in both his roles, not only as the suffering servant in his first advent, but also when he comes in power and glory in the second advent. Jeremiah is the next of the major prophets. And he really focuses on the divine judgment upon the nation. Not just the nation Israel, but the nation's plural. And, uh, but he has a very grim tale, and he's also known as the weeping prophet, because he had to, in effect, preside over a nation that was disintegrating. Ezekiel is next of the major prophets, who focuses on the coming restoration of Israel. And he wrote, of course, during the capt- Babylonian captivity, but focuses his attention, focuses his attention on the ultimate destiny of Israel. One of the great tragedies in the Christian church is a broad illiteracy among Christians about God's program for Israel. God is not finished with Israel as many people teach, but they have an incredible um, climax forthcoming. And Ezekiel is among the many that talk about that. Daniel is another of the uh, uh, major prophets, but we've already covered him because half his book is historical and we use that as our excuse to cover it uh, in depth already. So we really have um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel to focus on. And uh, you may notice, just to make a comment, to help you be sensitive to when I have something on the screen that's from the Old Testament, it'll show in the little scrolls typically. Uh, and if it's a New Testament, it's in a, in a, 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 in a vellum or in a, uh, uh, what purports to be a, a, you know, a, a codex. And um, it just, as we pop from Old and New Testament, that'll make you sensitive, I think, to where that quote is coming from. But um, as you may recall from our review of the historical books, the, after Solomon died there was a civil war and we had the nation divided in the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom calling itself the house of Israel. And uh, the southern kingdom ultimately goes into the Babylonian captivity and uh, um, the prophets that we're going to be talking about, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, are uh, 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 the major ones that we're focusing on. Uh, Isaiah really uh, administered during the kings of, uh, kingdoms of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, all the way to Manasseh, is the, 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 the contemporaneous with them. Jeremiah starts in the days of Josiah and continues 
right into the Babylonian captivity through Josiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. And now Daniel, of course, writes during the Babylonian captivity and beyond. And Ezekiel is, Daniel is transported to Babylon as a teenager in the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and Ezekiel in the second. And so that's the, the focus thus of these major prophets is primarily the southern kingdom and uh, all the way from Jotham through into the Babylon, Babylon captivity. So let's get into uh, Isaiah. Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than any other single prophet. And uh, uh, Jesus quotes most from Deuteronomy as any book, but uh, the New Testament writers in general quote more from Isaiah than any of the others. He has a style that is very lofty, very majestic. He had a, a, the, 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 in terms of vocabulary, uh, his vocabulary uh, rivals that of Shakespeare and Milton, who are known as having the largest English vocabularies. Um, very lofty style, and uh, loftier than Shakespeare, Milton, or Homer, and some of the other literary greats. One of the greatest discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And uh, you know, in 1947 at Qumran, um, that's a place about seven miles south of Jericho, um, they uh, discovered all kinds of very precious documents. But probably one of the greatest of all the discoveries was Isaiah and what made the, because they, they found a complete scroll. About, usually we have fragments here and there of various things. This was a complete scroll of Isaiah and the remarkable discovery was that it wasn't changed. The astonishing thing is with the exception I think of half a dozen single letters, the entire scroll is identical to the ones that we've had uh, before, before this discovery. And this uh, uh, is dated by the experts to be about 200 B.C. It is the uh, most recent copy uh, that is uh, uh, complete. And uh, the fact that it's um, uh, unchanged is an incredible testimony to the diligence and the discipline of the scribes. Because what they would do is when they copied, bear in mind they didn't have copiers, they didn't have printing. Everything was hand copied over of course. And so as they copied a page they would then sum, all the letters have numerical values, they'd sum the page and if it didn't agree with the page they copied they didn't correct it, they burned it and started over. In other words page by page they had to be perfect. And the rigors of the scribes is what, what the result of all that is a very faithful um, uh, copying, a very faithful uh, continuing of the text until printing of course was available. So um, the, the, the Qumran discovery really endorses the accuracy of the Bible that we have. Now Isaiah's whole life was spent under the shadow of the threatening Assyrian power. Um, when he was a young man, uh, Assyria carried away the uh, northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, we're focusing, of course, on the southern kingdom, but uh, Assyria is the big power. And, and uh, so the, the northern kingdom was not just deported, it disappeared because the Assyrians had a uh, policy of taking their captives and spreading out through the, the empire, having, forcing people to change regions and to, literally to break up dynasties and so forth. And so... Uh, he also witnessed the ruin of the southern, the southern kingdom also, the entire nation, except for Jerusalem. And uh, 
See, in about a few years after the northern kingdom fell, um, 46 walled cities of Judah were destroyed. And uh, 200,000 captives were taken to Assyria also. So they, they, had, they suffered there. And uh, the grand achievement of Isaiah's life was when the Assyrians were stopped at the walls of Jerusalem. They'd captured all these other cities, but um, they uh, literally were stopped by an angel of God. One night after dinner, one angel slaughtered 185,000 Syrian troops. And Sennacherib retreated never again to try that again. So uh, he learned his lesson in effect. So they were stopped uh, 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 rather dramatically. And so Sennacherib uh, even uh, 20 years later uh, never again came against Jerusalem. So uh, the principal messages of Isaiah is judgment uh, for lack of loyalty and their sin in the country. Um, he nevertheless focuses on the coming restoration of the nation. So on the one hand many of the prophets hammer away at the sinfulness of the nation and, what was, and the dire consequences thereof, but many of them also focused on God's ultimate restoration of, the, of the, the land. But one of the things that Isaiah particularly emphasizes is the coming Messiah, and that it will come, the Messiah will come through the house of David. And uh, th- there are um, a number of style uh, items that we should be sensitive to as we study Isaiah. One of the things you'll encounter is what some scholars call telescoping perspectives. Um, it's as if they have lenses of different focal length. They'll always typically put together two prophecies, one near and one far. And part of that's for, for the perspective of the topic they're dealing with, and part of it is a form of authentication. When the first thing comes true, it tends to build confidence that the second one will, if you will. So there are many prophecies that are sort of double references, and we need to be sensitive to that. Often the prophet will be dealing with something local, and as he talks about something local, the language will go far beyond the local thing and give us insights that are far more profound. We need to be sensitive to that. It's almost like he has a zoom lens, if you will. And uh, so another thing you'll notice in prophecy in general, and in Isaiah particularly, along the way there will be little treasures dropped by the wayside. Little incidental insights en route to the main point he's making. Little side comments that turn out to be incredibly profound. Uh, they're little encouragements in my mind every time you see one of those. Now the, the highlights of the book of course, the messianic prophecies is exceeded only by the Psalms. The, mes- the Psalms of course are full of messianic prophecies. One of the things he does early in the book, he, has, he is treated in chapter 6 to a vision of the throne of God. Now we read that in the Bible, sort of, you know, sort of take it for granted. It's rather staggering even for a prophet to actually be granted an opportunity to behold the throne room of the universe. And uh, we see it in uh, Isaiah 6, we'll find it in Ezekiel 1 and 10, we find it in Revelation chapter 4 and following. Uh, these are uh, interesting passages that uh, are worthy of very careful study. The other thing that Isaiah focuses on is, on is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's why Isaiah, I often facetiously say that Handel wrote the book of Isaiah. And, uh, and of course, and I'm kidding, of course, because but so much of Handel's Messiah and his things come, of course, out literally, word, word, word for word, out of uh, uh, Isaiah. One of the things that both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about that's going to be very important to you and me is the doom of Babylon. 
they both talk, both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about the destruction of Babylon, which did not happen historically. Many of your Bible helps unfortunately are in error. Babylon was conquered by the Persians back in 539, but without a battle. And even as late as the 1800s AD, the uh, it's still there. Uh, it's, uh, there are still people living there, even though it's uh, been eclipsed by other uh, um, caravan routes and so forth. But the Bible talks about a dramatic, catastrophic destruction of the city on the banks of the Euphrates that uh, merits our attention because if we're correct in our perceptions here, there are things going on in your daily newspaper that are pointing to uh, a direction that is forthcoming that both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk a great deal about. So the Doom of Babylon will be a major topic. The other thing that Isaiah highlights is the fall of Lucifer. Where did Satan come from? What's he all about? Is that just an idiom of English literature? Or is he a real living being? And indeed he is. And uh, you want to understand that. We've talked about the letter to Cyrus already that's in the book, but it's one of the dramatic elements of it. The Messiah and his atonement we'll talk about in chapter 53. Some people call that passage the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. Incredible passage both in its scope and its reach, but also in some of the treasures that are hidden underneath the text. And we'll show you some of those. And then of course the book closes near the end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it talks about his bloodstained approach. And uh, then uh, most of what we know about the millennium. that Jesus is actually going to rule the planet earth uh, from Jerusalem, and uh, for a thousand, uh, there's a particular thousand year period that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, but most of what we know about that period does not come from Revelation uh, 20, it comes from Isaiah 65 and 66, the last two chapters of Isaiah. And we're going to take a little addendum, we're going to talk a little bit about the so-called two Isaiahs and uh, th- that whole issue. But it's interesting, getting back, uh, there was a plot against the throne uh, the king, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, they mounted an expedition to depose Ahaz, the king of the southern uh, uh, king of Judah, and to place a son of Tabeel on the throne of Judah. Now, uh, this this gets thwarted. Fortunately, uh, they were going they were literally going to try to wipe out the house of David, and that's pretty foolish if you understand the house of David was, has been supernaturally ordained and protected by God against all kinds of assaults. And so uh, this is obviously ill-fated. It's well known to students of cryptography because in Isaiah chapter 7 there's some cryptography hidden under the text that reveals what the plot, what would have happened if it, what they were planning to do if they had won. So it's an interesting study and I won't bore you with the details of that except to highlight that it's there. But there was an attempt to make a full end of the house of David. But it would not come to pass as (laughs) Isaiah summarizes. But it leads to an incident where the, uh, uh, through Isaiah, and he says to Ahaz, the king, even that, although that plot has been foiled, he says, ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or the height above. Can you imagine getting that opportunity? The prophet of God comes to you as the king and says, hey, uh, it's a challenge. Ask a sign. It, whatever you can think of. But Ahaz isn't interested in doing that. He says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, hear me now, O house of David. This is uh, uh, Isaiah speaking for the Lord. Hear ye now, O house of David. No, he shifts now from Ahaz to the whole house of David. So this sign, even though Ahaz wasn't going to play ball here, uh, uh, 
Isaiah gives it to him anyway, and the focus is an assurance to the whole house of David. It's a very profound thing coming here. He said, hear ye now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Your English translations may say a virgin. There's the ha in the, in the, 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 the Hebrew. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's ha-alma, which is a word that means a virgin. Now, some skeptics will quibble and say, well, that word can, under certain conditions, also simply mean a young maid. Well, that's pretty silly in the first place because he says, the Lord's going to give you a sign. Behold, a young girl's going to have a baby. <laughs> that's a sign, you know. <laughs> no, it, the context clearly demands the, the uh, denotative use of that term. But just to clarify that, three centuries before the birth of Christ, the best Hebrew scholars available translated this into Greek. And they used the word parthenos, which is a virgin, an unmarried girl. And in the Greek it's very precise, unambiguous, that's what it means. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign, behold, a virgin, or the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now, and so we, of course, this is all familiar to you. you, you always celebrate this around Christmas time. Christmas has got nothing to do with the birth of Christ, but we celebrate at that time. It's not biblical, but we won't go down that path here. But we find a lot from Isaiah in our Christmas cards and elsewhere. Uh, in Isaiah 9-6, you've all heard this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, and upon the, throne of, uh, upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Boy, that's quite, quite a passage. Now, notice verse 6. Let's go back here. You've heard this verse many times, but you may not have realized that the child is born is a human. The son that is given is God. This is in that verse is included an attribute of the unique identity of Jesus Christ. Both man and God in one person. And that of course we don't that doctrine doesn't hang on this verse alone There's, it, it, but it's just a, it's again a, a, you know a supportive of that. And uh, his name shall be called wonderful. You may recall back in Judges 13 when Manoah had a strange visitor that, uh, was, that was announcing that the child was going to be Samson. And so, who, who am I speaking with? He said, my name is Wonderful. <laughs> well, he's not using it as an adjective. He's using it as a proper noun. Who do you think that person was? Well, I would argue from that he identified himself with Isaiah 9-6. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. But anyway, uh, of the increase of his government uh, uh, and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David. Did the throne of David exist during the days of Mary and Joseph on the planet earth? No. Rome was ruling things and they appointed an Edomite. An Edomite is the traditional enemy of Israel. There's a whole study of Edom you need to do, but uh, he was an Edomite, uh, Herod. And uh, the the, uh, throne of David was not operative. Did Jesus Christ ever sit on the throne of David? Not yet. Is He sitting on it now? No, He's sitting on His Father's throne. 
See, the book of Revelation is all about things out of place. See, Israel, Israel is not in the land. It needs to be in the land. Jesus is not on his throne. He's on his father's throne. And the woman in chapter 12, or excuse me, the, 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 not to, the woman in chapter 12 is not in her land. And uh, the church is on the earth but should be in heaven. So all those things get adjusted in the book of Revelation. So, uh, but we'll move on here. When you get to the passage in, in Isaiah that some scholars call the Holy of Holies, we'll call it chapter 53, although I want to highlight something else here. Many times, you have to remember that the chapter divisions were added in the 13th century. And, and they're very helpful. But you should also be sensitive to the fact that sometimes the chapters start too early or too late. Often there's a very key part of a chapter that really is the last verse or two or three of the previous chapter. And conversely, some major passages start a little after. So you should be, just don't take, the, recognize the chapter divisions are convenience but not necessarily inspired. So chapter 53, in a sense, starts with chapter 52 in the last couple of verses. And uh, it is an astonishing passage that uh, in this quick survey there's some places that we will stop and read it verse by verse because they're so significant and we'll do that here. In Isaiah 52 verse 13 Isaiah writes, Behold my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And indeed he will be very high. He was lifted up on a cross. And Jesus makes that point in John 3, speaking of the analogy with the serpent, uh, uh, the brazen serpent and so forth. But then there's a verse, verse 14 is a verse that the King James translators didn't feel you could handle. So they worded it not to be incorrect, but unless you look very carefully you won't understand what it's really saying. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. What that is actually alluding to is that the abuse that Jesus Christ suffered at the cross, and just prior being put on the cross, was so abusive that he no longer looked human. He was so disfigured, so abused, we, I think, are indebted to Mel Gibson's book of the, uh, movie, The Passion, because I, I think there's many things to commend it. Uh, it's a very useful thing. I know some people are critical of certain subtleties. I think that's quibbling. I think he's done us all a gigantic favor for lots of reasons. Not the least of which you can open a conversation with any stranger. Hey, have you seen The Passion? And no matter what the answer is, you've got a conversation going. But the one thing, there's two things that Mel couldn't do. Um, one is he couldn't really communicate who he was. See, the crucifixion was not a tragedy. It was an achievement. But that's too complex to try to do in a film uh, mission, really. The second thing he couldn't do, didn't do anyway, is to carry it all the way. If you think that was tough, if he had been even more accurate it would have been even more shocking. And we have materials on that, the agony of love and so forth. I'll, I'll leave that here just as a passing mark. Let's go on. Then we get, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which they had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. And then we're into the body of Isaiah 53 as it's commonly known. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? 
For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And, we, and when we shall see him, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's go back and take a look at that. Notice how often we are in antithesis. He and us. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. See the antithesis going on here. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of all. See the substitutionary. It's clearly he was in our place. And Isaiah nails this uh, probably with more precision than all of Paul's epistles put together. But going on, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. One of the most astonishing prophecies in the book of Isaiah, well known to any serious student of the Bible, but I'll tell you something that may surprise you. It isn't fulfilled yet. That should shock you. I thought this was filled to the cross. In a sense it was, in a sense it wasn't. Because what's being recorded here is Israel's awakening to that. This gets fulfilled when they confess their iniquity, as Hosea 5.15. This is the awareness that God is seeking in the nation at the national level as a prerequisite to the second coming. And we'll see that when we get to the book of Hosea uh, in the next session. Continuing this chapter, though, he shall see the travail of his soul, he shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He prayed for those that were with him. So, twelve key points here. He comes in absolute lowliness, a root out of dry ground. He was despised and rejected of men. He suffered for sins and in the place of others. Who, what others? You and me. God himself caused the suffering to be vicarious. 
He had absolute resignation. He opened not his mouth and so forth. He died as a felon from prison and from judgment, it says. He was cut off prematurely out of the land of the living. He was personally guiltless. No violence or deceit in his mouth. He was to live on after his sufferings to prolong his days. And uh, Yahweh, as most people would say it, or Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, as some rabbis would say, his pleasure would prosper in his hand. And there would be mighty triumph after his suffering. He would divide the spoil. And by all this, God would justify many. Praise God for that. Isaiah 53. Let me tell you that behind this text are some surprises. Setting aside for a minute its lofty message, let's take a look underneath it. You'll find that encrypted in these 12 verses are all kinds of other words. Yeshua is my name is encrypted there, his signature. Messiah, Nazarene, Galilee, Shiloh, which is a messianic phrase. Pharisee, Levites, Caiaphas, Annas, Passover, the man Herod, wicked Caesar perish, the evil Roman city, let him be crucified is there, the very quote they used. Moriah, cross, um, and on it goes. Atonement lamp, bread, wine, Obed, Jesse, seed, water, Jonah, all red words. Now, there's more. That's just the warm-up. You'll find the phrase, the disciples mourn, encrypted there, and then you find 40 names encrypted in those 12 verses of the people that were at the foot of the cross. You got Peter, Matthew, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, and two Jameses. There were three Jameses, but the brother of Christ did not become a believer until after the resurrection. And Simon, Thaddeus, Matthias, there were three Marys. One of them is encrypted and tangled with John, by the way, and Salome and Joseph. Now that's astonishing on the one hand, but tell you, let me tell you something that's even more astonishing. Some people would argue, well, that just happens by the frequency of alphabets in large text. And we're not talking large text, we're talking about 12 verses, and we're talking about highly relevant accidents here. But there is a word that is composed of four Hebrew letters that are very high frequency, which means that that particular word would be intrinsically, it would show up in any large Hebrew text because of the frequency of those four letters. And you would expect statistically to show up at least once in this 12 verses. It shows up. It's, it's conspicuous in its absence. And that name is Judas. Let's move on. In Isaiah 61 there's an interesting verse that Jesus himself reads when he opens his ministry. When he goes, when he's at the synagogue in Nazareth and uh, Luke chapter 4. He is handed the book of Isaiah and he finds this place and he reads this to them. And when he reads it, he announces this is hereby fulfilled in your ears. Notice what he, here's what Jesus read. And you'll find this in Luke 4 and also it's, it's a passage here, Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He shuts the book and declares, this day is this passage fulfilled in your ears. Now they subsequently get upset and try to throw him off a cliff. I won't go down all that path right now, but um, this is his mandate. Jesus opens his ministry announcing this mandate from Isaiah 61. 
But this is one of those lessons. The reason I'm making an emphasis is it's important for a lot of reasons. But also I want you to pick up some methodology. Always pay attention to what's not said and pay attention to the subtleties because the truth is always in the details. You notice to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord in your English translation you find a comma, right? He stopped at the comma. He didn't read the rest of it. Well, I'm curious about the part he didn't read. If you go to Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, you'll discover this is what he read, except the part he omitted, and the day of vengeance of our God. And he goes on. You see, that part was not fulfilled in their ears while he stood there. Will it be? Absolutely. That comma, after the word Lord, has lasted for about 2,000 years. But it's coming. I think you may have seen sometimes people put a bumper sticker on, Jesus is coming soon and boy is he angry. (laughs) And it's a little irreverent perhaps, but it it has a scriptural basis. Because he's coming in power to make make the the wrong things right and so forth. And uh, so uh, I think that's instructive. Well, let me comment. You, uh, there, there's so much. We could spend uh, a whole year just studying Isaiah. I just, it's, it's very frustrating just to try to pick a few highlights. Uh, but there is something I, I, I do want you to, to understand. There are, I'll call them pseudo-scholars, uh, that claim there's two Isaiahs. And I remember when I was a uh, emerging teenager, very excited about the Bible. I ran into these doctrines and they really set me back for a while. They, I didn't really buy them and yet they bothered me. See, the idea is, is that uh, they, Isaiah has been broken up into 66 chapters, just as we have 66 books in the Bible. And what you'll notice is the first 39 chapters have a certain style. And from chapter 40 on, it seems to shift rather noticeably, even in the translation. So some say the first 39 chapters really were written by what they call Isaiah 1. That was a different writer, an earlier writer. And he spoke, he, the, the subject of Isaiah 1 is the day of the Lord, and it focuses on Judah, Israel, the nations, and Jerusalem. And uh, then there's a, a four-chapter historical addendum, study of Hezekiah and how they, they foolishly uh, uh, get themselves exposed to the threat of Babylon and so on. But from chapter 40 through 66, they call, that was written by a different Isaiah. That was Isaiah 2, we'll call him. And that deals with the suffering servant and the consummation and so forth. People have noted that such a different style in the two, and so they say there were two Isaiahs. And that always bothered me. You know, you got people that think there's five different authors to the book, you know, to Genesis, to the, to, to the Torah, the so-called documentary hypothesis. All that is nonsense. All of that is easily shredded by good scholarship, doing a little homework. But you don't need to because Jesus authenticated the Torah. You, you can throw all that nonsense away. That's liberal foolishness. Um, tragic uh, uh, undermining of, of uh, the faith, of people's faith. Well, the Deutero-Isaiah theory you'll find in many so-called Bible helps. And I never bought it, but it always bothered me because it lurks there all the time. And I am so grateful, so grateful for my friend John. Uh, the, the fallacy, by the way, can be argued from stylistic distinctives. It's refuted by careful study of style, images, vocabulary, and constructions which span both those books both parts of the books, I should say. And people who argue there's two Isaiahs betray the fact that they don't understand the organization of the book. There's a, if they comprehend the whole design, you'll recognize it's a single book. 
But also, when it was translated into Greek, there are ascriptions to it and so forth. And you can also the, uh, see some try to argue that uh, one of the half the book was written after the exile and all that, uh, because Isaiah, see Isaiah predicts the destruction of Babylon. What makes that provocative, he's writing at a time that Babylon hasn't even risen, risen up as an empire yet. He's writing before Babylon conquers Assyria and becomes an empire. But he writes about how it's going to be destroyed. Well, they, they couldn't have been. It must have been written later. That's the, that's the skeptic's approach. Well, actually, there are, oh, there are pre-exile quotations all through the Scripture. And uh, so, uh, but anyway. Um, but there's also New Testament quotations. They're the ones that interest me. John, I'm so indebted to John. In John chapter 12, on verse 38, John quotes from Isaiah. In verse 38 of chapter 12, he says, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord be revealed? Does that sound familiar to you? Sure. He's quoting from Isaiah 53 verse 1, right? Well, a few verses later, he quotes from Isaiah again. He says, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted that I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. John is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the throne of God, and in that passage he he explains why some people don't believe. Because God has blinded their hearts, blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, nor be converted, and I should heal them. These things, there's a reason, I won't go into the whole story there, but the point is, John is quoting then, from Isaiah 6, verse 9 and verse, t- uh, verse 9 and verse 10, okay? We together so far? The exciting discovery is there is a verse 39 between verse 38 and 40. And I'm not being facetious, it's a treasure because John says, after uh, quoting from Isaiah 2, if you will, Isaiah, the second Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. And then he quotes from Isaiah 6. He quotes from Isaiah 53. He quotes from Isaiah 6 and links them as being written by the same Isaiah. So if these scholars that get their PhDs and H2SO4s from their seminary are correct, John is wrong. I bet on John. Okay? See, this, this linkage of the two Isaiahs is precious to me because it's another example of several things. There is no heresy. There is no false doctrine. There is no weird off-the-wall idea that isn't anticipated in the Scripture. You'll find the subtlest little things tucked around and you'll discover that they're planted there by the Holy Spirit to refute some nonsense that someone will come up with in the future. And this Deuteroisaiah thing is shredded by little, one little verse, verse 39 of John 12. I'm so, I'm so grateful for that because I remember the grief that I had as a teenager for many years till I discovered this to put away this nonsense about the Deuteroisaiah. Well, let's look at the panorama of history. Of course, we've gone through this with Abraham all the way through and so forth. And we're now focusing on the exile and uh, literally up to the exile, the Babylonian captivity, and the major prophets start in the middle of the monarchy and go into the, but not through the end, of the uh, Babylonian uh, captivity, except for Daniel. Daniel does. And the minor prophets, of course, 
start earlier and go later. So the minor prophets, even though they're smaller books, cover a larger span of history. And uh, they also um, we're, we're going to uh, we've been uh, uh, dealing with Isaiah. Now let's get down here and take a look at Jeremiah who uh, officiates, so to speak, in the final days of the, uh, the monarchy before it goes into uh, the Babylonian captivity. And so he's known as the weeping prophet. He was commissioned uh, in chapter 1 and then he has a, a bunch of prophecies that before the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, first uh, te- uh, chapters 2 through 20 are undated, uh, aren't, aren't specific. And they're not, by the way, they're not necessarily in chronological order. There's a whole thing there I'll spare you right now. But uh, there are a handful of them that are specific and very da- uh, dated for some reasons is, that deal with the last four of uh, Judah's kings. You understand there were about nine different dynasties in the northern kingdom, but there's only one dynasty in the southern kingdom, the, ca- the dynasty of David. You should need to keep that in uh, uh, need to understand that. You can't properly explain the history of any nation if you leave God out of the picture. And uh, corrupt leadership inoculates the whole nation with moral poison and the inward failure ultimately issues forth in national sin. And that's exactly the pro forma of, of the nation that Jeremiah is overseeing. And it's a tragic tale. And if you go through our commentaries, the ones that we did some years ago, you may even hear me weep on it. It's, it's a tough stuff because as you go through that, you can't help but see some parallels with our own nation. But in any case, uh, there are also prophecies from chapter 40 to 44, prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem where he's off carried off to Egypt, continues writing. Then there's a whole bunch of prophecies included uh, upon the Gentile nations. Egypt, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Elam, Persia. He also talks about the doom of Babylon, and we'll talk more about that before it's all over. And of course, finally, Jerusalem is overthrown. The weeping prophet. He's one of the bravest, tenderest, most pathetic figures in history because he was a patriot as well as a prophet. He cared about his nation, and uh, that makes it painful. He ministered for over 40 years, about 80 years after Isaiah under two kings, the most tragic national record ever written. And in 40 years, he never received a grateful response from anyone. Thrown in dungeons, prison, they felt his writings were treasonous, Um, they didn't repent, obviously, and so forth. And one of the questions as you study, Jeremiah, and I encourage you to do that, is to see if you think there's any parallels to our own predicament give you one quote from him that sort of captures his mood. Chapter 9 verse 1 he says, Oh that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. This is his mood. This is, in fact there's an, a, 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 an acrostic poem added to his book called Lamentations. Basically an acrostic poem uh, amplifying all this. There was another weeping prophet that wept over Jerusalem while riding a donkey. Um, in Matthew, it closes Matthew chapter 23, Jesus himself said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent to thee. How often I would gather thy children together, even as a hen gathered chickens under her wings. And ye would not. 
Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Here you have the purpose of all history. How I would have gathered the children together as a hen gathered chickens. That was the purpose of all history. The tragedy of all history, ye would not. He came and they, he received, they received him not. But the triumph of all history is that he, there will be a day when they will say, Blessed is he that came in the, cometh in the name of the Lord, and they will achieve that destiny that God has specified all through the Old Testament and the New. Well, some highlights. There are a lot of key themes in Jeremiah. The process of divine judgment in national life is the overriding theme. And the whole theme is that God has not abandoned His throne, and neither has He abandoned His people. Jerusalem, I will punish, but I will restore. That's basically His message. And He, pre- he precisely specifies the seven-year captivity. In fact, it's Daniel reading chapter 25 of Jeremiah that realizes as a captive in Babylon, it's about over. Jeremiah said it's going to be 70 years. It turns out it was 70 years to the very day. But something very important that we learned from Daniel, I remind you, when Daniel discovers the end is about near, he doesn't say, man, isn't that neat, and put his feet up on the desk and relax. He goes to prayer. If you knew that God was coming back, if the Lord, Lord if the rapture of the church or whatever was happening, you know, uh, by the first of March, what would you do? Man, rely. Oh boy, he's coming. No, that means you got just. That's time to get into serious prayer. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He's doing, and that's exactly what Daniel did when he read Jeremiah and discovered the the precision that, uh, or took advantage, took for granted the precision that was there. And Jeremiah also talks about the new covenant. He gives the name to the New Testament. We call it the New Testament, which is a strange term because the testament is like a will and testament, someone death, and of course that's, that's part of it. But a new covenant probably more descriptive, and that really comes out of Jeremiah 31, the whole idea of a new covenant. And uh, then the doom of Babylon, of course, is a topic I've mentioned. There's another verse that many people don't really understand in Jeremiah 22, closing the chapter, verse 30 of chapter 22. By the time you get there, God has had it with these kings. The northern kingdom went from bad to worse, and they're, they're gone. But the southern kingdom was not much better. They had a few exceptions come along, Josiah, Hezekiah, and a few others. But um, from there on, it's downhill after Josiah. In fact, it gets so bad under Jeconiah that God pronounces a blood curse on he, he and his descendants. And if you look at Jeremiah 22, verse 30, Thus saith the Lord, Write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Here's a curse on Jeconiah. Okay, he blew it. Bad news. But notice what God has done. He's pronounced a curse on the line descending from Jeconiah. Whenever I get into this topic, I always can't resist visualizing that when that happened in the councils of Satan, they probably had a party. Because I'm sure they were convinced God had shot himself in the foot, as we might say. That he, because he, he's, God has committed himself to a Messiah coming from the line of David. This is the Davidic line, and if there's a curse on it, how is he going to have a Messiah? And as I visualize that imaginary thought, I visualize God turning to the angels saying, watch this one. 
And as you go through your Bible, when you get to the New Testament, you get to Luke, Luke gives you a different genealogy than Matthew does. Matthew gives you the legal line from Abraham down through Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. Not the blood father, though. Luke, being a doctor, is interested in this humanity. He goes from Adam to Abraham. From Abraham to David, they're identical. But David, Luke takes a left turn. Doesn't go through Solomon, the, f- the first surviving son of Bathsheba. He goes through the second son, surviving son of, the second surviving son of Bathsheba. A guy by the name of Nathan. Not Nathan the prophet, another Nathan, I believe. And uh, to Mary. And so here, Jesus Christ is in, has entitlement to the throne through Joseph, his legal father, he also has entitlement through Heli, through the, the provision in the Torah for the daughters of Zelophehad. And uh, so those are uh, things that uh, it's it, 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 always exciting to me to see how this all ties together. It's interesting in its own right, but it's also interesting from a methodological point of view. Because if you stand back from the Bible and look at the whole package, you discover that every detail is skillfully designed to fit together. There's nothing in there irrelevant. And that's the challenge. To find some things that, what's that there for? Study it, because behind that question will be a treasure, a discovery. And it always does. Well, the doom of Babylon, I think I've covered this before, but we'll talk more about it before it's all over anyway. The destruction of Babylon, according to Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51, is that it's never to be re-inhabited. The building materials will never be reused. And it'll be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. That has never happened. It has been inhabited. The building materials are presently being reused. It has never been destroyed catastrophically and finally as Sodom and Gomorrah has. Both Jeremiah and Isaiah emphasize that. The fall of Babylon, 539, that some of your Bibles help say fulfilled that is not true. Because it, it fell without a battle. It became Alexander's capital. It was the Persian capital for two centuries and the, and the, and the a Greek capital following that. It atrophied over the centuries, but it's presently being rebuilt. And uh, one of the things you want to watch, because if, if we understand our Bible correctly, this fabled city from the Tower of Babel onward is, has a destiny to rise again as a major world power to receive the judgment that God is in store for. And as you watch that happen, it's going to be very fun because a lot of good Bible scholars don't agree with this. They chuck you're getting carried away with all this. Well, we'll see. Stand back and watch. Watch your, watch your newspaper. You'll see. And there's also an aspect of this that we'll touch on when we get to Revelation. So, okay, um, we've been focusing down here on uh, these, uh, these guys. At this point, let's take a look at Ezekiel. Uh, he was a priest and a prophet like Jeremiah. Not only an office of prophet, but he also had a priest background. He was one of the 10,000 that were taken in the, uh, captive in the second siege. Daniel in the first, these guys in the second. About 11 years before the final overthrow of Jerusalem when it's finally destroyed. See, Jeremiah and Ezekiel kept preaching to yield to Nebuchadnezzar because he's, God, he's God's instrument of judgment. The false prophets said, no, we're God's chosen people, and he, you know, they always encourage rebellion. And uh, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah says, if you do it again, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. They're a vassal right now, but they're at least able to live there. If you keep this up, God is going to level the place. And that's exactly what did happen 11 years later. But uh, Ezekiel talks about the coming judgments on Jerusalem. He's a very colorful character. He has all kinds of similes and visions. He, he acts out skits to make his point, And they're really bizarre ones. And I won't go through them here, but they're kind of very colorful reading. But he also deals with the future destinies of the nations. And he 
specifically has a passage on the origin and destiny of Satan. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel give us most of what we know about Satan's origin and ultimate destiny. But Ezekiel will also focus, fortunately, on the restoration of the nation of Israel. He'll talk about the Valley of Dry Bones, and, uh, he, uh, and uh, he'll talk about Gog and Magog. We'll touch a, a bit on those. And uh, then, of course, he has a great, he has a tremendous amount of detail on the millennium, chapter 40 through 48, about how the land will be allocated, and he has an incredibly detailed specification for the final temple. Not the temple that they will be re- rebuilding in the near horizon, but the uh, temple in the millennium. And it's a subject of a lot of debate because it's, it's too detailed to be just an allegory of some kind, and yet it's uh, uh, so bizarre that it raises other questions, but that's a, a special study. So there are strange similes all through Ezekiel. He shuts himself up in his home, he binds himself, he is struck dumb, he was to lie on his right and his left sides for a total of 430 days in one episode. He ate bread that was prepared in an unclean manner, and he shaved his head and beard, which was considered a shame in, in their particular uh, uh, culture and calling. So uh, he's a, he's a, he's, this guy's a character. But one of the things he has that attracts a lot of attention is he has a vision of the throne of God. And in this he sees cherubim that have four faces. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 sees seraphim. They may be the same thing. Some scholars think there may be two different kinds of things. But in each case they share these strange four faces. A face like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Now it's interesting because the camps of Israel in Numbers 2 uh, were the, the 12 tribes were clustered into four camps. The camp of Judah, the camp of Ephraim, the camp of Reuben, camp, camp of Dan, which have as their ensigns those same four Im- uh, symbols. And then when you get to the Gospels, we haven't gotten there yet, but when we do you'll discover that the four Gospels present Jesus Christ from four vantage points. Matthew, being a Jew, presents him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, Mark presents him as the suffering servant. The classical symbol of service was, of course, the oxen. And uh, Luke's a doctor. He's focusing on Christ's humanity and presents him as the Son of Man. And uh, John is a whole other uh, thing with the, as the Son of God. So we'll talk about that when we get to the Gospels. Let's talk about Satan, because he's too important to, to, to uh, not to... Uh, highlight here. We talk a little bit about his origin, his agenda, and his destiny. We learn most of that from two books, Isaiah and Ezekiel. In Isaiah 14 we find his ambition as exemplified by his five I will statements. Ezekiel tells us that he was the anointed cherub that covered. The cherub, singular of cherubim, is a super angel. He apparently was the anointed one, that is the one appointed over all the others. The anointed one that covereth is a a quaint way of expressing that. In Revelation we find a summary of his attempts to thwart the plan of redemption. All the way through, you can study the Bible from cover to cover in terms of Satan's attempts to thwart God's plan. As it's revealed more clearly, he makes his attacks more specific. All the way through. But let's take a look at Ezekiel 28. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now this, he's talking in this general passage about the king of Tyre. But now his language starts getting carried away here a little bit. Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. I have never met the king of Tyre, but I don't know if he was the, the ultimate 
of wisdom and ultimate in beauty. That sort of is, seems a little extreme to be found in a document like the Word of God. Then the next phrase nails it. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Really? Was the king of Tyre in Eden? I don't think so. This is being addressed, I believe, to the power behind the king of Tyre. Follow me? Strange structure, but we see it frequently in the Scripture. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. There's only three people in the garden of God that I know of. And it's this, this is not Adam or Eve. It's the Nachash, the shining one. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold, the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. These precious stones are classic ways of reflecting colored light. And we find that in the, obviously in the breastplate of the high priest. We find it in the New Jerusalem in Revelation. Uh, it's, it's an idiom that uh, deserves a lot of attention, but uh, uh, we're really... Uh, it's, it's uh, indulging in conjectures that go any further than that. But the other phrase in here, the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes, those are musical terms. It's from this phrase that we understand that his music capability was unparalleled. And there's speculation on some that he probably led the worship in, the, in heaven until he got overly ambitious and got carried away with his own plans. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy days from the day that thou wast created. Comma. Thou wast perfect from the day that thou wast... No, he, now he's obviously a super being. It's obvious though that he's a created being. Question. Who created him? Jesus Christ. Colossians tells us that all things are made by him. Without him was not anything, anything made that was made. And by him are all things held together. So you often hear, you know, uh, between Christ and Satan as a phrase or something. That's misleading. They're not equals. Not by a long shot. Satan is a created being. He's not, and so let's not confuse that point. Then we have the saddest words, saddest word in the entire scripture. Thou was perfect in thy days from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. An interesting scrapbook to put together would be make a list of all the untils in the Bible. They usually represent a milestone of some kind, profound milestones. You, can make, you could make quite a, a doctrinal dissertation just highlighting the main untils in the scripture. And this is one of them. He's the anointed cherub that covereth. He was in charge. Until iniquity was found in thee. Then it goes on, by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled, the merchandise being like traffic, multitude of thy traffic, they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. And Isaiah is going to pick up on this theme, give us a little more amplification in it. But continuing with Ezekiel, thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude. Thy sanctuaries. He apparently led worship. 
Thou hast defied, defiled thy th sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and, shall, and never shalt thou be any more. Let's shift to Isaiah. There's a similar passage in Isaiah 14. See, remember, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. See, it's multiple of seven. But in Isaiah, he is taking after the king of Babylon. Ezekiel was tired. Here's Babylon. But again, the same thing. The language goes, pierces beyond the, the literal king and is talking about the power that's behind him. And Isaiah says in verse 12 and following, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which is weak in the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The five I wills. Unbridled ambition. This is why God hates pride. Because it was the pride in Satan that led to the beginning of sin. That's why leaven is a symbol of pride. Because it corrupts by puffing up. Isaiah continues, Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. When you see the word hell uh, in the English, you have to realize there's several choices it could be referring to. If it's in the Old Testament, it's typically talking about Sheol, Sheol which is not the grave. The grave is for the body. The Sheol is the, is the domain of the spirits. Sheol can't be owned. There's a single Sheol. Lots of graves, only one Sheol. It's, a different, it's, it's similar, but different concept. The grave speaks to the physical, the Sheol, the spiritual, the, the, the soul and the spirit are in Sheol. And uh, uh, in the New Testament, the term would be Hades, roughly equivalent, unless he's talking about the ultimate place, which is Gehenna. Because even Sheol and Hades will be thrown into Gehenna at the end. We'll see when we get there. But seeing Satan, yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? That did shake kingdoms? That made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? that opened not the house of his prisoners? Wow. See, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, Then shall they say also them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, in the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. See, the ultimate punishment that we always talk about in hell in the common vernacular was made for Satan and his angels. And no one will be in hell because of their sin. They will be in hell for having rejected the provision God has made for their sin. There's a difference. Because Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross if you'll but accept it. Well, Ezekiel also talks about the restoration of Israel in several terms. His passage of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37 is a classic, of course. It's a vision of the restoration of Israel. They're brought back to life in the flesh, and then later breathed with the Spirit. Many people say, gee, they're in, they're in the land, but they're not in belief. 
No kidding. But they can't be back, they can't get the Spirit until they're back in the land. So the, step one taking, is taking place. They're in the land. And the good news is there's a, a, a groundswell rising of Jewish people who are believers in the Messiah. That's exciting. In Isaiah 11, 11, we didn't pick this up when I was there. I want to leave it for here. In chapter 11, verse 11, there's a passage in Isaiah that says, the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people. And it goes on from, from all over the world. The Lord set His hand on them to bring them back from Babylon. That was the first time. When He sets His hand the second time, that's all she wrote. You and I have been watching that since the last part of the 19th century into the 20th and the middle of the 20th century. On May 14th of 1948, David Ben-Gurion, citing Ezekiel as his authority, named the new Jewish homeland Israel. And um, so God has has, begun a work. And what He starts, He finishes. It's going to be painful, but it's coming. And of course this is fulfilled, this part of it at least, in the first half of the 20th century. The second time. Why is Israel to be restored? Ezekiel 36, verse 22, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, get this, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. What God is saying through Ezekiel 36 to Israel the good news is you're going to be restored, but not because you deserve it. Every place you went, you blew it. But my name is on the deal, so my honor is at stake. So I'm doing this for my sake, not yours. That's what he's saying. I do not this for your sake, but for my holy namesake, which ye have profaned among the heathen whither ye went. See, that's why I think the third commandment is so serious. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It has nothing to do with vocabulary, nothing to do about swearing. It has to do with ambassadorship. If you're going to take the name of the Lord upon your life, you better represent Him fairly, accurately. He's very jealous of that. Moving on. He continues. I will sanctify my great name which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. That's what we're watching. Now, uh, now that's chapter 36 and 37. In chapter 40 on, we have the millennium, the millennial temple. There's a highly detailed description, it's not simply symbolic. All nations are going to worship there, by the way. Offerings and sacrifices are going to be resumed. People are shocked. What do you mean? I thought Christ died once and for all. He did. But Christ's death is what saved people, not the blood of bulls and goats in the past, the author of Hebrews emphasizes. So the offerings in the future are no different than the offerings in the past. They're both memorials. The ones in advance are prophetic of what's coming. These are going to be commemorate what happened. But they will be resumed. And by the way, something will disturb a lot of people who are uh, hung up on Saturday-Sunday issues. Um, the Millennial Temple is only open on Saturday and on the new moons. What happened to Sunday? Well, that's fine now. We have liberty in Christ, and He's the fulfillment of our Sabbath, so I'm not going to get into a law trip here. But it's interesting to discover that God ordained the Sabbath day in Genesis. 
And it's rather disturbing to read Isaiah 56 and other passages where clearly he uses that as a measure of people who are trying to please him. Do they profane the Sabbath or do they honor it? Not keeping the law, that's a whole other issue. But I'll leave that with you to think about. Anyone that thinks that's a simple issue hasn't studied it. But there is an event that occurs after the restoration of Israel, which is going on, and before the millennium. And that's chapters 38 and 39. Gog and Magog, strange invasion. It's famous for two reasons. First of all, it's the occasion in which God himself intervenes to quell an ill-fated invasion of Israel by Magog and his allies. A powerful guy by the name of Magog arms and leads a group of allies in an invasion of Israel that God intervenes in. The allies are listed in Ezekiel 38. Persia, Cush, Put, which is north and dark Africa. Libya, Gomer, Togarma, Meshech, and Tubal. Meshech and Tubal being principal cities in Anatolia or Turkey. And uh, the other thing, the reason this passage is so well known among Bible scholars is the passage appears to anticipate the use of nuclear weapons. That's a pretty absurd thing. Where do I get that? Well, I'll show you. First of all, let's figure out who Magog is. Hesiod was a Greek didactic poet which wrote in the 8th century B.C. He wrote before even Ezekiel did, and he identifies the descendants of Magog as the Scythians by their Greek name. Herodotus, the father of history, wrote in the 5th century. And he uh, uh, also calls them the Scythians. They terrorized the southern steppes of Russia from the 10th century B.C. to the 3rd century B.C. All the way from the Ukraine to China. The Great Wall of China was built to keep them out. Or an attempt to, anyway. Philo and Josephus calls the Great Wall of China the ramparts of Gog and Magog. Soviet archaeologists who are, uh, have, have uh, done all kinds of discoveries of the Kurgans, that are the graves of the Scythians, and they know everything what they because they, they're, they've been frozen for 2,500 years. So they're going to analyze the bodies to find out what's in the digestive. There's still material in the di- digestive tract that can be analyzed. They know a great deal about their lifestyle because they are the forebears to the true Russians. In any case, they come from the uttermost parts of the north. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, the invasion comes from where? The uttermost parts of the north. What's uttermost north of Israel? It doesn't take a genius to see that. It's Russia. And what happens is Magog uh, uh, lines up these tribes to invade Israel, but God intervenes. Won't let it, won't let it happen. And uh, the leftover weapons, Ezekiel tells us, will provide all the energy needed for Israel for seven years. That tells me that it happens before the 70th week of Daniel, because after that we, you don't need the energy. Professionals are hired to clear the battlefield. They wait seven months before entering, and then they just clear it for seven months, according to Ezekiel 39. They bury the dead east of the Dead Sea. Read that downwind. And furthermore, if a traveler finds something the professionals have missed, he doesn't touch it. He marks the location, lets the professionals deal with it. And uh, anybody that's been briefed on nuclear, biological, chemical warfare knows the drill. Very contemporary. This, is, this language in Ezekiel was written 2,550 years ago. It sounds like a DOD publication in the last few years. Well, we talked about the seventh week of Daniel, which of course is in, defined by a covenant being enforced by a world leader. In the middle of that seven-year period, there's an abomination of desolation. We've talked about that already. And Jesus himself, quoting Daniel 12, labels the period between the abomination of desolation to the end of that week as the great tribulation. Jeremiah in chapter 30, verse 7, calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, because the focus, of course, is Israel. 
Now the and of course we know because the abomination of desolation is desecrating a temple, we know that the, by then the temple will have been rebuilt. We don't know when it's going to start, but we know it's standing by then because that's, that's the, the focus of this issue. The 70th week climaxes with the Battle of Armageddon, which is in turn interrupted by the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom, the millennium. The question is, where does Magog fit in, the Magog invasion? Many scholars, good scholars, place it as part of the Armageddon scenario. Hal Lindsey, uh, to this day, still uh, uh, believes that's the correct uh, understanding. And he may prove to be correct. He's certainly a, a, a major uh, a factor in, in our perceptions here. On the other hand, there are a number of us that happen to believe, for a number of technical reasons, that the Magog invasion is not connected with Armageddon. It occurs prior to the 70th week of Daniel. And uh, we have our reasons. That's not important because I'm not here to really you know, attack that one or the other except to make this point. Uh, the placement of that has some ambiguities, but something that we all agree on, all conservative scholars agree on, is that it occurs after the rapture of the church. So if the Magog invasion appears to be getting positioned on our horizon, that's exciting. It's the way I usually express it. If, if you see the stores decorating for Christmas, you know that Thanksgiving's not far away. <laughs> there is a disturbing hint in Isaiah 39 that I can't resist sharing with you. The more you know about the details of the text in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and the more you know about the current geopolitical horizon, the more it seems that it's getting in position. However, in verse 6, God says, I will send a fire upon Magog. He's talked about that already. Hailstones of fire falling on the field forces. And among them that dwell carelessly in the Ilya, and they shall know that I am the Lord. The word isles or coastlands is ambiguous. There are some that worry. What may be hinted at here is that it may be United States missiles that are used to wipe out, to, to, to quell this invasion of Israel. And it, it precipitates a hit in, in return. That the fire on Magog may also fall upon them who dwell carelessly in the remote coastlands. Some people suspect that this might be the way that God chooses to finally bring judgment upon America. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get to the minor prophets because they have much to say about that. So in our subsequent sessions, we're going to talk about the 12 minor prophets in the hour 12, and then we're into the New Testament. We'll talk about the messianic thread and how sure can we be of these things as our bridge. And uh, so, but let's take a, a, a quick look at uh, how these fit together. Here are the southern and northern kingdom. The, the southern kingdom, of course, goes to the Babylonian captivity, and then we have the, the uh, uh, exile prophets. Uh, the, 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 the northern kingdom had been spirited away earlier but it gets conquered by Babylon, so those they get commingled again. I want to talk a little bit about the um, Old Testament texts. See, the original Hebrew, sometimes called the Vorlaga, was pulled together in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Septuagint translation is the translation of the Old Testament that occurred three centuries before Christ's ministry. About, started about 285 B.C. to 270. Seventy-two scholars in Alexandria were commissioned to do this. Took them 15 years. And the primary quotes in the New Testament of the Old Testament come from the Greek. It's about the ninth century. Well, first of all, there is a council of Yamnia uh, that uh, in 90 A.D. where they meet and they're upset because the, the, their Greek uh, 
Bible has become the Christian's Bible. And so they lay the groundwork for what eventually becomes the Masoretic text. See, the Hebrew, a little comment about Hebrew language to give you some, a little more background here. The Hebrew language is characterized by vividness, conciseness, simplicity, and it, but it also makes it difficult to translate fully. It takes about twice as many English words to translate Hebrew. And, but it has a root structure. It's formed from three-letter roots and with forms developed by a change of vowels or by adding suffixes or prefixes. But all, it's all based on three-letter roots. The root consonants give Hebrew a semantic backbone and stability not characteristic of Western languages. And verb usage is not characterized by precise definition of tenses. It's very context dependent. Therefore it seems designed to allow puns and word games. That's why we see all kinds of exploitations of those features in the biblical text. Let's talk about Greek as the other primary language. It's just the opposite. It's very beautiful, it's rich, it's harmonious. And it's a fitting tool for vigorous thought and religious devotions, but it's also incredibly precise. It's characterized by strength and vigor, the language of argument. It has a vocabulary and style that could penetrate and clarify phenomenon rather than simply describe. So it's far more a perceptive language. It's the most precise form of expression of any language in existence, the Greek. Let me give you an example. The Greek verbs have to fit five aspects, tense, mood, voice, person, and number. A Greek verb will convey far more than just its definition in a lexicon. It'll tell you who's performing the action, whether just one or more uh, than one is doing it, when it is done, whether it is a single event or a process, whether it is an actual happening, a command, or just something wished for, whether it's a subject or verb is active or a passive precipitant, or both. We have passive voice and active voice in English. They have optative. It can be both. A single Greek word may thus require a phrase or a sentence or, a more, uh, or more in another language. Just the Greek verb requires a sentence to get across what it's commanding. So and there was a classic Attic Greek which was subtle and very, but very expressive and that characterized the culture at its peak of course, but it's often untranslatable. After his conquest, Alexander the Great encouraged the spread of Greek uh, culture and, and regional dialects were uh, replaced by Hellenistic or common or Koine Greek and that's the Greek that we're dealing with here. It's simpler, less elegant, but it retains much of the original strength, beauty, and clarity and, and uh, its rhetorical power. Well, the Septuagint manuscripts, there's a number of them. I won't take you through all of these in detail, except that we have plenty of the Septuagint manuscripts. Um, unseals means simply that they're all capital letters. Uh, the vellum unseals came out of Alexandria, and we now have discovered that many of them were modified by the Gnostics in the, in the third and fourth, fifth centuries. But uh, the, uh, and I won't go through all of those. That's a whole other uh, discussion. We have a briefing pack on how we got our Bible that will go into this for you if you're interested in that. But the Council of Yomni is worth understanding. 90 AD they rejected the Septuagint because it became the Christian's Bible. And so they want to return to the Hebrew versions upon which it's based, the Verlaga if they could. And uh, they produced a unified text of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and uh, tried to see that divergent te- texts uh, were destroyed. And that led eventually to the what now we call the Masoretic text, and that's the English uh, that you your, the, the, the translate your English translation came from primarily from Masoretic. The Masoretes were a, a, a group of very very strict scribes um, from the 500 A.D. to about 950 A.D., and uh, they they they're the ones that developed a form of vowels. See, old Hebrew didn't have vowels; you inf- you inferred the vowels. Well, they put little marks above and below the letters to to imply the proper vowels.
And the oldest of this, the oldest one of these is 895 A.D. Only for only part of it. There's still parts of it that are missing. But um, anyway, the uh, I won't go through all the other texts except to say that we have uh, uh, good copies of these, uh, and they're, they're ample uh, uh, from 1000 A.D. on. The Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, there were 11 caves in Wadi Qumran, 600 manuscripts, uh, and, and 60,000 fragments, many are still being studied. 85% were leather, only 15% were papyrus, more durable. And in Cave 4 they had uh, 40,000 fragments of 400 manuscripts, a hundred of which were biblical. Every book has been found except Esther, parts of it at least. And the important thing is to understand that the Septuagint is well before the New Testament period. That's why it's so valuable to us as we study prophecy because there's no question about the, the, the existence and, the, and, and what, because the Septuagint is three centuries earlier and it is in Greek, very precise. No excuse for ambiguities. The central theme of the Old Testament is that it's the account of a nation. The New Testament is the account of a man. The Creator became a man. His appearance is the central event of all history. He died to purchase us and He is alive now. And our most exalted privilege is to know Him and that's what the Bible is all about. So with that let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well Father we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the privilege You've given us to be able to meet without hassle, without persecution, without interference. We realize that that's a unique blessing. Father we just pray that You'd help us take advantage of these days. Help us to discover the treasures You've hidden here for us. And above all things, Father, we pray that You would illuminate that path before us, that through Your Holy Spirit and Your Word, You would make it ever more clear what You would have of each of us in the days that remain as we seek to be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities You've brought before us. And as we commit ourselves without any reservation into Your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.